0: Okay, if you have a copy of the scriptures, open it to 2 Samuel, excuse me, chapter 5. 2 Samuel, chapter 5. We are finally coming to the time and place where David is actually going to take his place as the king of Israel. And so let's begin verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Remember, Hebron is where he was staying, in Judah, the southern kingdom. It's where he had been king now for a number of years, I think about seven years. And they said to him, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. And so now they remember what he had said or the Lord had told him years ago. It's kind of interesting. Well, now you remember. It's getting too crowded over there, huh? (laughs) The groundwork has already been laid now for David to take the kingdom. And I think it's interesting that this whole talk about David's anointing, has now spread. So everyone says, we know that it was told about you that you were going to be the king. And you think about that, over these years, that word taking just flight, because there is no cell phone. Heck, there wasn't even a landline at that time. There was no phones. There was no TV. There was no Facebook. There was only this word of mouth communication. Of course, they could write and send things out. But this has begun to grow and so there's a definitely grassroots event taking place that David is now becoming popular in the people's mind. And so now we know you're our flesh and blood. And remember all those times that we read where David didn't kill Caleb and David isn't the one who killed Abner. In fact, last time when we saw that David made sure that everyone knew that he wasn't the one responsible for killing his own people, now is when that becomes very important. And it's so important that the things that are happening now are really connected to the things that have happened to David in the past. If David had taken battle with the Philistine army against his people, they would not be saying, you are our own flesh and blood. Or if David had been killing the people of Israel in the different provinces, they would not readily be accepting him now. But because of his integrity in the past, it has led to this opportunity in the present. And we need to keep that in mind, that the integrity of our lives now will bring the opportunity for our lives in the future. And that's what unfolds here before us. And we're going to see that that works in the reverse in David's life as well. Verse 3, it says, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now this is the third time David has been anointed. He was anointed by Samuel originally some years back. He was anointed by his family and those that were there at Hebron. And now he's being anointed by the larger and greater community. And it's it's important to recognize that the anointing first came from God and then was displayed and accepted by larger and larger groups because, again, of the actions of David. The anointing had to be seen before it was accepted by a lot of people. And many times that's the case. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years so we get a little picture of David not bad for a 30 year old become king what did you do by 30 it wasn't king i bet so he's got us beaten verse 6 the king and his men marched to jerusalem to attack the jebusites now the jebusites were not Is- israelites they controlled this city who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. So they're like putting him down. They thought David cannot get into here. Nevertheless, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. <laughs> I think that's funny. It's just so matter of fact. You'll never get in here. Oh, yeah, he got in there. And this is the first time we see the word Zion mentioned in scripture here. And now it's connected to the city of David. And so David is setting up his camp, his base camp, here. Uh, the, The name of Zion was later extended to include the whole temple area and the mount. It's where David is going to bring the ark in. And because it is known now as the city of David. It was a prominent place in Israel's history. This is a really smart move by David for a few reasons. One, this area did not belong to any of the tribes or was not claimed by any of the tribes. So David now taking rule of his kingdom is not taking it from something that was existing. You know, So it's like, well, now that I'm king, I'm going to take your house. It's like, hey, wait, that was my house, you know, I don't like you as a king anymore. It was something that was occupied by the Jebusites. It was also in a region north of Hebron and just south of Israel, so it was in a good place to be a part of both kingdoms. It also was elevated, so it was fortified, so it would be a stronghold for him. So it was a smart move all along. And David comes in and he takes this place, which is going to be called the city of David. On verse eight, it says, on that day, the day that he conquered, he had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind. He's kind of insulting. They say, no one but the lame and blind. Okay, if you want to get there, this is how you're going to do it. The water shaft to reach those who are David's enemy. And that is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. And so it became this buzzword as everyone started remembering this. Now, 1 Chronicles chapter 11 gives us more insight into this event. What David had said was that whoever goes in there and takes this place will be my chief and commander. Who was his chief and commander right now? I hear it. Come on, say it. Joab, right? Joab, okay. I hear I go, Joab. Joab, I don't want to be wrong, so I just say it under breath. It was Joab. Guess who ended up going in there and conquering it? Joab. He stayed in that position. Now, remember, Joab, in the last chapter, did not leave on good terms with David. David pronounced this curse over Joab for killing Abner. But Joab is bent on maintaining his position. Now, this is an interesting thing that David does, is gives opportunity. And it's interesting that Joab is quick to take that opportunity. He seemed to be that way all along. He seemed to be a person that would get it done. He seemed to be a person who wanted to retain his position and even though he did a lot of terrible things, he was a person that got things done. And many times, that's exactly the way things happen in life. Who gets the position? The person who asks for it, the person who works for it, the person who does it. And it, it works many times in the things that God is doing. If God is going to do work Who's going to get the work done? Well, the person who wants to, the person who steps into that role, the person who actually does the work. And I think a lot of times we can get into a position where we just say, well, Lord, if you want to give me this, I'm here. And the Lord's saying, well, if you want it, go get it. And so there is an incentive part on Joab that takes place that results in this getting done. And David does this quite a bit. If you want this position, do this task. Remember, that's how he got his wife Michal, or Michael. Whoever goes out and slays and brings me this will have her hand in marriage. And David did it. And so we see this taking place here as well, that David puts out this request, Joab fulfills it. Now, the interesting thing about David and Joab, is on David's deathbed. When he is about to leave his kingdom to Solomon, he gives instructions, kill Joab. Interesting. This guy is a go-getter, and he's probably going to go after the kingdom. And so he doesn't trust Joab ever, apparently. Interesting, huh? doesn't that bring up questions like, wow, that doesn't seem fair. All right. Oh, we're just beginning. Uh, Verse nine, David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. It's nice to be king. Get to name cities after yourself. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. And so all this that is happening, there is a recognition that God is with David. Now, when it says that God is with him, what does that mean? What comes to mind when you hear a phrase, God was with him? Why was God with him? Okay, good. So God was with him. Could God be with him? Well, let's. was God with Saul originally, right? God was originally with King Saul, and then what happened? Saul disobeyed, and then the kingdom was taken away. And so God was with Saul, again, when Saul was with God. And so there is that dynamic of the relationship that is taking place. Now, God saw in David a heart that he anointed him, and so God was with David, and God initiated that, relationship, but then God or David was responsive to that relationship with God. And and so I think it's interesting that it says because the Lord God was with him, well, the Lord was with him because he was also with God. And that's an important part of that dynamic, that God was reaching out to David, David was responsive to that, and then obedient to that call. Verse 11 Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stone masons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Now, David had respect for building relationships and alliances. And so we see Hiram, the king of Tyre, was one of those relationships that David had built up. And it's interesting to me that then David knew. When did David know that the Lord had established his king? It was when this outsider, this foreigner, came and helped him. I think that's interesting. Because it goes on, it says, he established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. God didn't exalt him for himself. God had exalted him for the sake of others. And that is always the case. Jesus didn't come for himself. He came for us. For the sake of others. I didn't come to be served, he said, but I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And so the character of God is always one that is concerned in giving towards others. Think not just about your own things, but think of the things and the needs of others. Let everyone esteem others as more important than themselves. This is the character of God that's supposed to be displayed in us, of actually caring about others more than ourselves. And if we have this mind frame and live in this form, then we will make decisions that God can bless because we are not doing it for selfish motives but we are doing it in response to the grace that's been shown towards us. And so we see that David recognizes this, that now the kings from outside are coming and blessing him. That's showing that God is with us because now I see that God is going to bring the others here to take care of the people of Israel. And so there's just this great mindset that we see in David right here at this point. That's real important that we understand and recognize. In verse 13, after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. Now, we talked about this last week, so we're not going to get into it again. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says you shouldn't do this. David did. And more sons and more daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there, shamua Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elisha, Elishama, Eliah, and Elephant, or Elephelet. So these are the people, these are his sons, and we're not going to get into this, but we see that with the power came also the abuse. So even though he was doing things well, he was doing some things not so good as well. And I guess that could be true for all of us. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David, our first, let me see, I thought, okay, no, we'll wait. I'm going to try and get to two chapters. Okay. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So we see again this inquiry. God, are you going to be with us? Will you deliver them? He hears from the Lord, yes, and so they go. So David went to Baal, Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me so that the place was called Baal Perism, which means basically the Lord breaks out. The Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. So they left their idols, which were their strength and their power that was supposed to be their. This is going to be our good luck charm kind of a thing. And they just abandoned. So David's men took them and collected them and carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephium. So David inquired of the Lord. Now, I think this is interesting because many times it's like, well, God did this once, so let's do it again. That's kind of my thinking. You know, hey, they're here. We delivered them. They're here again. Let's do it again. God already said, yes, I don't really need to inquire of God again. But David did inquire. David always triumphed. When he inquired of the Lord. It's important to note that he always triumphed when he saw and obeyed God and inquired of the Lord. So, and David inquired of the Lord, verse 23, and he said, do not go straight up, but circle around. And so he got, should I go? And God says, no, do it this way. Circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. David inquires, and he gets strategy from God. What did that look like? Did God speak audibly to him? Or did David all of a sudden get this, I got an idea. And I just inquired of God, and now I got this idea. I think this idea was from God. We don't know. But David all of a sudden had this strategy that was, not going to confront them face to face, but was to actually hide and wait for the noise to sound. And we don't know exactly what that means. It's interesting because these trees that are mentioned here, um, the poplar trees, the leaves are very light and move very easily. And so hearing something go by them, you could hear the rustle, maybe it was their signal of when to move, because when you hear this pass, then you can come in and attack them. We don't know exactly. But even in this strategy, there is the inquiry of the Lord, and God in some way, somehow, tells him what to do. And I know that there's been times in my life when I've been like, God, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to move forward? Shall I... Take this action and go to this place. Or should I wait for something else to happen? And then you get this idea. Why don't you do this and see what will happen? And, you know, it seems like my idea, but where did that idea come from? Where do ideas come from? You know, all of a sudden the light bulb goes on. Bing! It's like, I got an idea. Where did it come from? Was it just my own mind or was there some input coming from another source? And it's a strange thing, but God speaks. And sometimes it comes through our ideas. Things that all of a sudden I never thought of that. I It wasn't on my mind at the time. I remember when Genesis was first beginning and we were thinking of the name what are we going to call ourselves and and came up with the name genesis and i wanted kind of a statement and i was like what kind of statement we believe no i don't want it to be like that and so i was just kind of in my mind and all of a sudden driving i remember i was out in pasadena area because i remember i was driving about five miles an hour on the 210 freeway heading back and as i was coming this sentence came into my mind embolden one another to begin changing the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. And I thought, wow, that was good. <laughs> and I just thought, where did that come from? Well, I've been wanting to have this idea, you know, a statement, but when was the last time I used the word embolden? I never used the word embolden. Where did that word come from, you know? And it was just one of those things where I had this idea, and I believed that God gave me the idea. And so David inquired of the Lord and then got this strategy. And it could be that it was just that way. Because you know, I always read those things. How did God speak to him? You know, I expect, David, listen to me. Reverb, reverb. This is the Lord. You shall go down to the poplar trees. You know, And give him... But who knows how it happened, but it took place and it was given credit to the Lord. And I believe it was probably a lot simpler then maybe we try and make things to happen. Any questions on that chapter? Anything stand out to you guys at this point before we move on to the next chapter? True, very true. And that's a perfect lead-in to this next chapter. Thanks, Alex. A he is a plant. Because what we don't see in chapter 1 is that inquiry. It says, David... Verse 1, chapter 6, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bela in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They sat the ark of God on a new cart. And brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all his men were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. So we see this incredible event taking place. Just to to get it in your mind, the Ark of God was last seen in 1 Samuel chapter 7 at the house of Abinadab, and it had been there about 70 years now. And if we remember, remember that the Ark was taken by the Philistines, and it was brought into their temple, and they put before the temple of their god, Dagon, and then that Idol fell and its hands were broken, and then they started getting hemorrhoids, remember? And so they shipped off the ark, and the ark ended up at Abinadab's place, and it's been there for 70 years. Interesting. Now, what is interesting is David is now going to get the ark of God. It's important that this is part of his kingdom. And turn with me to Psalm 132. In Psalm 132, we get a a little picture of this event says, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, when he says a place for the Lord, he's talking about the ark. And so we see now that he's getting a house built for himself, but he says, oh, I need a place for the Lord, which is representative in the ark. We heard it in verse 6 of Ephrathath. We came upon it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might." May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. And so here is the event that is taking place. This is singing about what is taking place and that David is going to be a part of that. And so here's the festivity that's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 6. They're going down to get the ark. Because David wants a place for the presence of God to be seen and worshipped. His kingdom isn't going to just be a military one. It is going to be one that is acknowledging the reality of God as their king. And so it's going to be a religious establishment as well. And so all this is taking place. And they put the ark on a new cart, which is a very... uh, practical way to do things. In verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nekon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And so there's a bump in the road, and all of a sudden there's a jerk, and so the ark is kind of moving. And so Uzzah, whose name means strong, reaches out, took hold of the ark to stabilize it. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there besides the ark of God. Wow. Verse 8, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of God ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Such an amazing series of events First of all, let's deal with the event, the one that stands out the most. Uzzah is struck dead because of his irreverent act. What was the irreverent act? Some of you might know. Touching the ark. ark. Numbers 4, verse 15 says that no one is supposed to touch the ark in this holy way. Also, The ark was not supposed to be carried by anyone other than the priests, Exodus 25. And so David says, let's go get the ark. He's excited. They put it on the cart. It starts driving. And then, man, rain on your parade. Guy dies. Okay, that'll bum you out, right? It's like all this festivity. And then the guy driving the cart stumbles, touches the cart. Boom, he's dead. Uh, Uzzah's dead the car just kind of stops there what's going on you know, all the harps and everything kind of die down mm, what's going on Uzzah wake up Wait, he's dead and it's like oh my gosh he touched the ark and then he died and then David's angry and then he's afraid and I think that's so cool he's like hey, hey we had something good going on here man all the planning all the things that we were doing to, to get the ark back here And now this happens. Now, there is so much we don't know. We don't know the attitude and heart of Uzzah. He might have been, I'm just trying to help. We don't know the attitude of David. Maybe David was trying to use the momentum and now use this as a political ploy. We don't know but we do know that God will not be used and that he does need to be respected. And so as this starts unfolding, God shows up and says, don't treat me lightly. You can't take me for granted. And I'm not gonna be thrown on a cart and part of your parade without reverence. And so these things come about And Uzzah dies, and then David's angry because God's wrath came on Uzzah, rained on the parade. And then David's afraid because God just killed someone. I don't want this at my house yet. Okay, so it's going to go to obed Edom's house. Poor guy, <laughs> this is going to go to your house. Why my house? Because you're nearby. This is going to your house. Like, But the Philistines, you know, they had hemorrhoids, and then he, Uzzah died, and now it's coming to my house. What's going on? And for three months, it's there, and then the Lord blesses him and his entire household. Interesting just events. Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah, it doesn't mean that God, right. It doesn't mean like he went to hell. Yeah, he went to hell because he touched the ark. No, it could be just discipline, and it required his life, you know, which is a big discipline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, Moses hit struck the rock twice, and God says, okay, you don't get to go into the promised land. It doesn't mean that God didn't love Moses or didn't care for him. No, that was just... The results of his, yeah, consequence of his actions. So, yeah, by all means. We just, you know, we can't put too much into what we don't know. But we do know that God had required the ark to be carried by the priests. We do know that it wasn't supposed to be handled. And so those were things that David should have been aware of. You know, and the way that David did this, it's very similar to the way the Philistines brought the ark back into Israel. was on a cart. Yeah, just throw it on a cart and send it off. Any other thoughts on this event? So what will David do? Okay. So in verse 12, David had been told that the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now, It almost seems, David was afraid, I don't want the ark here. And then someone says, good things are happening to this guy where the ark is. It's almost as if God is saying, I'm not mad. I just want you to understand what's going on here. It's not that I'm out to get you or I'm out to bring judgment. I just am not going to be used and I want you to respect what I have told you. And so God kind of gets everyone's attention, especially this one guy, uh, Uzzah, got my attention. (laughs) Hey, God, it's me. Verse 13: When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, now we see they're carrying the ark of the Lord, had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. This is pretty tedious. Okay, It's a lot quicker to use the cart, but it's not right. And so now it's being done the right way. And wearing a linen ephod. Now, this isn't underwear. This is kind of just a normal garment. But what this isn't is royal garment. And that's really important to recognize because it's going to come into the story. So David is wearing common clothes, a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. So he's part of the festivities. They're bringing the Lord every six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six, stop. Kill the fatted calf, sacrifice the bull, offer worship to God, dancing, singing. All right, let's go. One, two, three, four, five, six, stop. Same thing over and over. This is gonna take all day. Okay, it's meant to. And David is there dancing before the Lord with all his might, verse 15, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of the trumpet. So he's in the midst of all the people. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, or Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Oh, there is such a lesson here. Before anything took place outwardly, it started inwardly. When she despised him in her heart, it would lead her to the actions we're going to see. And That's why the scriptures tell us that we are to guard our hearts for they are the life spring of our souls. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's the inside that matters. How you think and what you believe and what you entertain in your heart is of such importance. And if you entertain these things that become despising, You are sowing a field that will bring up a rotten crop for your soul. It will cause such harm, and especially in a case with marriage. If this becomes, how do you get over despising someone in your heart? What can a person do to regain your admiration if you despise them? It becomes very difficult. And the problem isn't what they do. The problem is in what you are believing and entertaining within your heart. And so that becomes the battlefield. How do you deal with that? That's your battle now. You see, this was McCall's battle. She despised David. She is the one who could continue this or stop it. And it didn't matter what David did. It mattered what she was entertaining. And why is she entertaining these things in her heart? Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings or consecration and fellowship offerings or also praise offerings or peace offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. And so here is this incredible show of generosity, this incredible festive occasion that took all day, all these offerings and sacrifices that had burnt, all the meals that are being eaten, and then the gifts as it's finally coming to the end, everyone goes away just, oh, this was a good. Day. And David returned verse twenty home to bless his household. Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked. Now again, he wasn't half naked, but what he was doing is going around without the royal apparel. You weren't dressed like a king, you were dressed like a commoner in view of all the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Wow. He comes home to bless his house. Honey, I'm home. (laughs) Oh, you're home, are you? Oh, didn't you parade yourself like some commoner out there in front of all those women? Spurgeon writes that pirates look for a loaded vessel. David comes wanting to give blessings and quickly the enemy wants to just rob us. Whenever those blessings are there and whenever that life, we feel that, man, this is great. It's not far behind when something wants to come and rob those things. Now, there's a couple of things here that are telling. First of all, well, let's finish the chapter and then we'll talk about it. Verse 21, David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, that's a ooh burn right there, or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So, where to start? Where to start? First of all, we see that David was conducting himself in celebration to God. He was rejoicing, excited. Why do you think McCall was so upset? Why do you think she's, I mean, she's bitter because... She's been kind of tossed around, right? Her dad says, yeah, you're David's husband. Oh, David's on my bad list. You're this guy's husband now. And then David gets power. Hey, come back. You're my wife again, right? And remember her husband was crying. Oh, don't leave me. And they say, stop it, you know. And now she's here. And what about all these concubines, right? Can't, can't just gloss over that, right? You're one of uh, many, you know. And so all of a sudden there becomes this jealousy, and so, you know, there's no mention of these slave girls except for the fact that that's what a concubine would be. And so, oh, David, weren't weren't all the slave girls looking at you, you know, today? And so there's this jealousy that probably arose also because of David's behavior in that regard. And so the things that we do really matter in how we play out. You see... David had no, it seems, and and we, I believe, clear by his own words, had no intention of doing this because of the people. In fact, he took off the royal garb because he was wanting to acknowledge the holiness of God. And he wasn't trying to establish himself as was before. Now he's rid of all the holy, you know, royal apparel God is the only one who's being magnified here. I'm a part of the celebration. I'm a part of this worship. He's, you know, dancing before the Lord with all his might. And I don't know what that looks like, but I really want to, you know, see that someday. I want to see the preview reel or whatever they call that, of what that looked like, because it had to be something special. And as that's taking place, David's heart is no doubt just wanting to honor God. But you see, there's these things that he had done. And there's been a part of that probably played into the despising in her heart that takes place, and now it's going to affect their future, her future, and David's future. It's terribly sad. Because when it says she had no children to the day of her death, there's a reason she had no children. And it's not just because she said these things, it's because... Her husband wasn't with her. Yeah, that's why she bore no children is because that was his way of saying, yeah, no. No doubt there's pride in her part taking place here, you know, as well. You know, nothing is ever as simple as we'd like to make it. Life is complicated. Relationships are complicated. People are difficult and complicated. And and so whenever, you know, someone pours out a simple one, two step to happiness, I'm always thinking, what about this circumstance? You know, what does step three play into? What about what's behind door number four? You know, there there is no door number four. No, there is. In life, there's a door number four. And no one's usually standing before it, but it opens up sometimes and you have to deal with it. And life is like that. And so it's so interactive between what we do, what others do, and what God is doing. That it's hard to fathom these things. In fact, we get headaches thinking about it. You know, Corrine and I were talking about that just... Today and last night about all the things that are taking place, you know, the tragedy of Oklahoma and what has happened there. And God, you know, there was a video of a woman's dog. Did you see that where her dog was rescued and it was like so touching, but it's not touching for the parents who didn't get their child. You know, all of a sudden it's like, God, why would you save a dog and not my son or my daughter you know, and then those questions come in. It's like, well, was it God's answering, or was it just happening? And it's too complicated for me to figure out. You know, is this? And then there was a pastor who posted a, a scripture from Job, saying, you know, that the Lord brought this wind, and it was kind of a. It just didn't sit well. It was kind of a really ugly thing because it's like, okay, so what? You're telling us that God did this. You know, and they're coming from a Calvinistic point of view, and it just, you know, you just can't blow things out there like that without taking so much into consideration and taking into consideration the emotion of people um, going through these things. And life is like that. God is always working, but people are always doing things that are part of God's always having to work around and with. And through, because God's going to still work his ways, but now he's dealing with David and the concubines, and he's dealing with Michael and her attitude, and dealing with the ark and bringing it back in a way that is right. I mean, all these things are working together at the same time. And so what is supposed to be our attitude? I mean, because otherwise you can get freaked out and like, I'm just not doing anything. You know, when I, it's funny, when I'm training dogs, after I've been there like an hour or so, and the dogs have learned a few things, like they know when they go down, it's good. Pretty soon, that's all they want to do. It's like, I'll just stay down. You're happy when I'm down, so I'm down. You know, hey, come on, let's go. Nope, I'm down. I'm okay. I'm fine. You know, they're just getting through that. And we can get that way too. We're pretty silent in life. It's like, I just don't know what to do, so I'm not going to do anything because I'm afraid to do anything. But that's, that's not this lesson here. The lesson is to always inquire of God. The lesson is to be mindful of the things that God has said and desires, and to move forward in the things that God has for us. To take those steps. David had to take those steps that were challenging and dangerous in those battles, but he inquired of the Lord. And David... It was good to bring the ark back, but he didn't inquire of the Lord at first. He just went out and did it, and then he went back and redid it the right way. And sometimes that's the way we learn. You know, we learn through our mistakes, but we come back out and we say, okay, this is the way I should have done it all along. Anyone ever said that in life? Man, if I could have go back and change things, oh, I I, I could be... Much a different person, if I would have went back and inquired of God, and so the lesson here isn 't lay down and do nothing. The lesson I believe in here is to be in this relationship with God, where he is important, where we actually do inquire and ask of him for direction, where we actually remember his character and the things that he wants for us to do and to put those things in place in our lives so that they affect the decisions that we make in the future which will affect our future i think those are some of the lessons here anything else anything else stand out to you guys or you want to ask a question or a comment Well, the truth truth is he he didn't get away. You know, the truth is, you know, the things that he did caused a lot of plague in his life. I mean, one son kills the other son. That son tries to take over his kingdom. He threatens to kill him. Um, His home was plagued with devastation because of the decisions he made. And so the question, I mean, a man after God's own heart, it, it... it really speaks into repentance and it re- it speaks into God's grace uh, for our lives because God doesn't consider a person after his own heart is the person who does all the right things. But a person is after his heart is a person who wants the right things and keeps getting up and stumbling towards the right thing, which is God. And that's what David did. He kept stumbling towards God. You know, even when the things would happen, he would get up and he'd say, oh, God, you know, hear my cry and don't take your spirit away from me. I, I, I can't live without that. And so, you know, that's the lessons of, I think, from David's life. Cause, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think whether you're a child or not, those are things that we struggle with. You know, suffering takes place. In different ways, um, you know in Romans chapter eight, starting at verse eighteen, it says, "I consider our present sufferings aren't worthy to compare with the glory that will be revealed in us, and so already there is a an understanding that there is something that is of more value than all the things that we see and understand, for the creation waits eagerly expect in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. And so Paul's talking about creation being in this decay In this bondage in verse 22 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so creation is growing as if it's in childbirth because of the condition of the world, because of what sin has done it has affected nature itself where creation itself is now in decay and in this form of childbirth pain waiting for the redemption to come place come to place and so this is not the world that was originally created by god it's now subject to what we've done and Part of the struggles, the earthquakes, the, the tornadoes are a world in disarray, a world that's in decay and struggling to deal with that. To what extent? I, I, I don't think we realize how important the things we do are to the point where our actions actually have affected creation you know, we just think, oh, no, it just affects what people see. And that's why I've it's not hurting anybody, then I can go ahead and do whatever I want. I don't think we have any idea that our separation from God set the cosmos in disarray to an extent where creation itself is now groaning, you know. And so when things like this happen, this is the passage that comes to mind, is the world is in childbirth waiting to be delivered and have this new, you know, adoption take place. This new life, that is part of it. Now, there are times where God brings judgment, and I don't, I can't begin to understand when God does it, when creation is just groaning. I, I don't have that ability, you know, and so I have to trust that God always judges justly, even in Uzzah's case when he, maybe he meant totally well to touch the Ark and bam, he's dead. You know, it's like, wait, I was trying to help. And God says, don't worry about it. I'll, I've got something I need to accomplish here. Now, there there's a lot of ways to see this. And again, it would be a tragedy if we saw this world as the end game. You know, if we didn't see our lives as more than just this, you know, life is something that exists beyond our flesh and blood. And so if that reality isn't a part of our thought process, then this will be an impossible thing to understand, you know, because of that. Yeah, and so there has to be hope beyond, because everyone's going to die. You know, this is just tragic, because these children died much too young. But I didn't think we'd end up here, but nuts. We. any other thoughts, questions? Father, there are so many truths that you give us glimpses of, so many things to to get from these passages, Lord, that deal directly with us and our character and how we live. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take from what we've seen here and put into our own lives into practice. The things that will help us to build a future that is not just for ourselves, but is for others, to build for our futures a life that brings honor to you and help to others. Um, God, help us to learn from David's mistakes so that we don't have to make those same mistakes. Help us to learn from all these characters that we've read about, Lord. The things that are good, the things that are bad, things that will be helpful, the things that have been harmful, and may we grow from these things, from their expense, and not require it to be our own. Thank you again for this time and this passage. Lord, may it stay within us, Lord. May we take it to heart and apply it to life, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.